Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And today I'm going to let you know we're going to finish chapter 1 and move into the first three verses of chapter 2. So, uh, so you're aware of where we're going to go with all that. Now, last week we had the opportunity to talk about a ransomed reality. And we talked about how our relationship with God has been made uh, different. We've changed because of this reality that has taken place in this interchange um, that, that Jesus did for us. He ransomed us. And we also learned that it has changed our view of life on earth because we're no longer um, connected only to this earthly time period. Instead, we're now citizens of heaven, as we've talked about from the very beginning. We're exiles. We're, we have this eternal view. And the, the end of the message last week told us that our faith and our hope are in God. They're now in God. But not only has it changed our relationship with God, this work that Jesus has done in our lives and the work that God is continuing to do in us also changes our relationship with other people. So both our, our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with people have been changed. Now today, we're going to see then how it is we are to live in that and, and step into that. That's what Peter is going to address here. So let's begin with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And here's what it says. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So that's where we're going to begin here today. Our first step of obedience towards God has a purifying effect. All right, that's what he says there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. What, how does that work? Well, we hear the gospel message. We understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we make a step toward God in, in obedience. We, we begin that move toward faith of saying we want to put our faith and trust in Jesus to be our, our Savior. And, and for centuries, theologians have pondered and debated how and when that process all takes place. They talk about some of the theological terms about regeneration, being made new again, and, and justification, the, the legal requirements that God has on human beings, and how does that all work, and, and which, which comes first, the faith or the regeneration? Does God regenerate you, which gives you faith and then allows you to respond, or do you respond and then he gives you faith? There's all these kinds of conversations that go on, and it gets pretty technical as people are trying to figure things out. But what's not up for debate is the result. And the result is very clear and very simple. And that's what he's saying here. We are made clean. We are purified. Our souls are purified. And we're given the righteousness of Jesus and a love for each other. That's what happens when we come to the Lord. And I, I want you to notice here that in this, this one verse, we, we have the word love used two times. But what I also want to make you aware of is that those are two different Greek words for love. 
All right, now, if you've been around church very long, you've probably heard that, there, that in the, the Greek, which is what this letter of 1 Peter was originally written in, in the Greek, they had multiple words for love. And each of those words was for a different aspect of love or a different type of love. And here we have two of them. The first one, where he says, you've purified your souls from a, uh, by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That word is Philadelphia. Uh, the, the city of Philadelphia is named for this type of love, the city of brotherly love. You might have heard it said, because that's what it is. It comes from two words. It's a compound word. Um, from Adelphoi, which means brothers or family. It's re a reference to family. And then phileo, which is a type of love, one of the types of love. So it's a family sort of love. And he says that when you make that step toward the Lord and your life is changed and you're adopted into the family, you begin to have this family type love for other believers. You begin to see other believers as your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have a love for them. I don't know if, if you've experienced this, but I definitely have, where you meet somebody for the first time and you find out they're a Christian and they find out that you're a Christian and you immediately have this bond with them. You barely even met this person, but you realize, whoa, we, we're family members. We're going to spend eternity in the same new heaven and new earth that God creates for us. And there's a bond that's, that's immediately formed. And he says, that's what's happened. Your soul's been purified. And as you've been obeying the truth and you have this now family love, but he goes on and, and that the, the next love that he says there at the end of verse 22, but he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And here is where Peter commands us to go on to the next step of love, the different kind of love. Not just that family love of, hey, we're all, you know, we're family members. Now he says agape. That's the, the love that God has for us. It's God's love. And, and I want you to know here that what he actually says there, when he says love one another, it is an imperative, which that's a fancy grammatical term to say that means it's a command. What we're being commanded here by the Apostle Peter, is we're com being commanded to love, agapao. We're to love each other, but not just with this love that is just an emotion or a feeling, but a love that is like God's love for us, an unconditional love, a benevolent love, a sacrificial love that isn't even based on the goodness of the recipient. That's one of the biggest difference about this type of love, this agape love that we're commanded to have. What he's teaching us and telling us is that we are to love sacrificially and, and completely, even if the way, the people that we're pouring this love out on, even if they reject it or they're not affected by it or we don't get anything in return. And Jesus, obviously, is the ultimate example of that agape love. What did he do? He left heaven, came and, and incarnated in the flesh in a human form and lived among human beings. And not only lived among human beings, but sacrificed himself even to give it his entire life, to die and experience death and go through death for us, sacrificially even though many people have and will continue to reject 
all of that love that he offered. And that's the love that we're described, that's described here that we are to have. We're commanded, love one another. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. John, the, the apostle, tells us the same thing. In 1 John 4, 7, this is the same word, that, um, the agape love. Here's what he says. He says, beloved, let us love one another. For love, this type of love, agape love, is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This type of agape love, this sacrificial love, comes from heaven to earth. It's one of the things that Jesus came and brought as an example to us. And he says the people that love this way are the people that have been born of God and know God. And it is a command for loving one another. And it's for all of God's children. He says, yeah, your, your soul's been purified as you've, as you've begun that relationship with the Lord, but now you need to step into this love. It's a command. It's not something that he didn't say, and just wait, because then love is going to begin springing out of your heart in this way. Sure, there's going to be some, some bent toward that as we're healed, but what he's also saying is, is it, it's an act of obedience. It's a response to the command. We're being taught to do this. Jesus himself taught the same thing. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he commands his disciples specifically with this love. It says this, it says, A new commandment I give you. This is Jesus. A new commandment I'm going to give you, that you love, it's the same word, agape, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And look what he says as he goes on. He says, and by this, by this love, by this way that you love one another, this agape love, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So I hope you're, you're seeing here the importance or the centrality of this command that Peter gives us. When he says, this is the love that you have to have. It's like the defining feature of a Christian. Somebody that has this sacrificial love, this benevolent love, this godlike love for other people. Now, also, uh, just so you know, when Jesus spoke that in John 13, he taught the disciples that after an action that, that many of us know very well. Earlier in John chapter 13, what has just taken place is Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. What did he do? He took this opportunity to show a sacrificial love by washing a bunch of grimy, gross feet and sacrificing and serving somebody else, each of his disciples. And then after he's done that, as he's served them, and told them this is part of the life of a Christian, now he says this is the sort of love that is going to define, that is going to define my people, my disciples. That's how we're going to be known to be Christians. Now think about that too. That's, that is different than what we sometimes see with people that call themselves Christians or claim to be Christians. Notice, though, and remember, it's the love that's supposed to be that factor. 
It's not the clothes we wear or the clothes we don't wear. It's not the music that we listen to. It's not the bumper stickers on our car. It's the love. That is what is supposed to be defining us as Christians. And because we are Christians, here's your first fill in the blank if you're following along with the notes today. Because we're Christians, we're called to be loving. We're called to be loving. It's who we are. We've been changed. Now he goes on there in verse 23 and says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There is a permanent change that takes place in the life of a Christian. And it's important that we recognize it and know it. Even if you've been a Christian for the majority of your life, and I know that some of you have been born into Christian homes. You've been raised as a Christian. And it might even be kind of cloudy for you to think back to, when was I not a Christian? For others of you, it was the farthest thing from that. You hadn't even heard the name Jesus except as a curse word until later in life. And you may not have decided to become a Christian until 55 uh, before you even experienced that change. And so for you, that change might be a little more fresh in your mind. But either way, you've been changed from the way that you were born. No one is born a Christian even those that are born into a Christian home. And when we choose to follow Christ, one of the things that is described often throughout Scripture, Jesus described this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we are born again. You hear that phrase, that term at church, being born again. But when we are born again, we undergo a permanent change. That's what he says there when he says, you've been born again not of this perishable seed, but of an imperishable, meaning something that, that can't rot or go bad. It's, it doesn't perish. It, it's permanent. And the reason it's a, this permanent change is because it's something, he says here, that's been spoken through the abiding word of God. We will be people of love forever as Christians. We've been changed to become those people. And then that's part of the new life that we've been given, and that's not going to be taken away. The life of a person that hasn't been born again is temporary, and that's what he's describing here. He says, look, all flesh, all just, just plain human beings, we're like grass, and the glory of that flesh is like just the flower of grass. And what does that, what does that mean? He says, eventually... That person is going to age and shrivel and die. And if you haven't been born again, your life is truly a temporary life. And then he says there, he says that through this living and abiding word of God, well, what is that? What is the word that abides forever and was preached to you? It's the gospel message. 
It's the good news. He says there in the end of verse 25, this word that was spoken to us is the good news that was preached to you. What is that? It's that by grace, through faith, we are one with Christ and we're right with God. We're now part of the family of faith. We've learned that. And these other Christians, the other Christians that are also um, tuning in and watching this service with you uh, today, these other Christians, they are your family. And they're your family for eternity. You're never going to lose these people. You, you know, you hear the statement, um, sometimes blood is thicker than water, referring to our family, right? Our blood is thicker than water. Well, we now all share the same blood of Christ that has cleansed us and transformed us. And that's good news. That's good news for us. And when you think about what, I really like the image that he uses here where he says, talks about it being a seed. It's this, this imperishable seed that's implanted in us. It, it really reminds me of the, the parable that Jesus tells in, in actually all of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this, this parable that Jesus told. And I think that Jesus probably told this parable often as he went around teaching and preaching because it's so powerful and so meaningful to each of the disciples. Um, but one of the things that he describes is it's this parable of the sower. And what he says is he says, the word of God is like a seed. And it, it's like a seed that someone who's planting goes out and begins to plant. And he talks about these three different soils that the seed lands on, if you remember the story. The first one, he says, he scatters the seed out and it just falls on a path a pathway that's hard and packed down and it can't get into the dirt at all. So what happens immediately with that seed that's sown? Birds see the seed in the sky, they fly down and they eat it up. And so it's just gone. It doesn't even have a chance. It just hits the path and it's gone. Secondly, he says, some of the seed isn't thrown on the path. It actually lands on soil that's kind of rocky. And those plants actually get to grow and they start to grow for a second, but because it's so rocky, the roots can't go very deep. And so when the sun comes up and gets really hot, it just burns the roots. And so the plants just wither up and die. And so they don't last very long at all. So they don't survive either. They perish. And then the third type of soil, he says, is it's soil that receives the seed. The seed starts growing. A plant starts coming up. But pretty soon, the problem with that soil was it was full of weeds and thorns around it. And so these other weeds grow up and they just take all the nutrients of the soil and the sunlight and they overshadow the little plant and the plant can't live either. And so it withers up and falls away. But then the, the last type of soil that he describes is the, the soil that is good soil. It has everything that it needs. It has the sunlight and the water and the nutrients in the soil. And he says that seed, when it lands on the good soil, it grows up into a healthy plant and it begins to bear fruit. And that's what he's describing here. He's saying that this agape love that's supposed to be coming out of us is the, one of the primary fruits produced in a Christian's life. He says, that seed, that imperishable seed that was planted in you and took place, took root in you, as it begins to grow, as you begin to grow as a Christian, one of the primary things that will come out of your life is this love, this love that we're commanded to, this love that's willing to sacrifice, this love that's willing to serve. 
even when it's sometimes not going to be received well or may not be returned. So how does that, how does that um, affect the way we view the church and this family that we're part of, the Christian family? Well, the church is the place where this is always supposed to be evident. And if the church is healthy, the church is going to be full of this love. Why? Because it's going to be full of people that are bearing that fruit. It's going to be full of people that are full of the love of God. And we have to remember that as a church. And that's one of the places that we have an opportunity to step into this and obey the word of God here, where it says we're to love people with that type of a sacrificial serving love. We aren't just here to love ourselves as a church. We are to be willing to sacrifice and serve for each other. And we don't participate in the church, in the life of the church, just because of what we get out of it for ourselves. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people have approached church in, in our you know, culture, in our society. A lot of people say, well, I want to go to this church because I can get this from it. Or I want to go to that church because I can get this from it. And there's some of that's totally true, right? We do receive from the church. But it's also another aspect of, of mature faith would say, I'm going to go to that church and be part of that church because of what I can give to that church, what I can provide for that church, the way I can be used in that way. That's very different than the consumer mentality of that just says, well, I want to go here because I like the food there on Sunday mornings. Or I think that the kids' ministry is so awesome that I can get that for my kids. I don't care about any of the rest as long as I can get that. Um, it's, it, it comes down to like almost your favorite restaurant. Like, where can I get the best burrito? I go there because I want that burrito. <laughs> what can I get for me? It's different. We, we give our money to the church out of obedience to God and for the benefit of the church at large. We volunteer to serve, not only because we're going to build relationships for ourselves, which we will, but or even because it's just our duty, because God told us we had to, like right here, called to love one another in this way, but also because that love is being produced in us. Now, I want to tell you, if you've felt those desires in your heart to serve and to love and to give and to sacrifice, that's, that's God's work in you. That's where you start recognizing some of the fruit that God has put in you. People will ask you sometimes, you give money to a church? What are you thinking? Like, you could use that money. I know what your finances are like. But then you, you, you spend a little moment of introspection and realize, yeah, but I want to do this. I want to give this way. And the reason is, it's not because you're crazy. It's because God has been working in your heart in this way. Or they find out, what? You're going to give up a weekend to go serve these kids and love these kids and take care of these kids on a Sunday morning and you, you prepare a, a lesson to provide to these kids? Yeah, I want to. Why? Because it's this love that's, that's coming out of you. It's being produced in you. It's this fruit and you're stepping into it and you realize there's an opportunity for this to happen. That's God working in you. And even if you don't feel like you have much to offer, 
Because that's sometimes how people feel. They, they say, oh, well, there's people that are more talented than me that can do that. There's people with more charisma and they're funnier and so the kids like them better. Or, or there's other musicians that are better than I am or whatever. And you might say, well, I don't really have much to offer. That's not true. That's not true. God has uniquely gifted every one of us in different ways and we're all called to offer whatever it is we have. We might have a lot. We might have a little we might be very developed in our skills or abilities. We might be very underdeveloped. It doesn't matter. We're all part of this family, and we all have an opportunity to offer those things, and we're all called to love in this way. And these are just some of the ways that you are loving each other. And that extends to everyone who's a part of the church, even to, to specifically you know, um, address the youth in our church here today. Look, guys, you have something to offer to this church. And as you are growing in your relationship with God and your understanding of God, he's going to place those things in your hearts. This is your church. And what he's calling you to and drawing you towards, you can begin expressing that love to your church family in, in this same way. And I want to encourage you to do that. So experiencing this love and expressing this love is why the local church is so important. Do you realize that it takes other people to love one another, right? You can't be your own little Christian in your own little world doing your own little thing and love one another. You have to be involved with others to love others. And I want you to think about this this week. Here's just a, a phrase that I'm going to flip in both directions for you to think about. There's a big difference in being linked to a church and being loved by a church. There's a big difference in being linked to a church and being loved by a church. But there's also a big difference in linking yourself to a church and loving your church. There's a difference there. There's a depth that's different in that. Now, although this loving transformation is a permanent change, we also realize, yeah, but we're not perfect yet. So we think about this, this, this high standard of love. You're telling me I'm supposed to love like God loves? Whoa, you don't know me. Like I, the plant that I am as a Christian has not grown to that level yet where I can just see the abundance of love you know what? Jesus said the same thing in the, the parable of the sower. He said, look, at some, they're going to be producing 30, some 60, some 100. There's different amounts that are going to be produced as we go through the, the life cycle of, of love. Because we know none of us are perfected yet. And we're all on the path to sanctification. Christians aren't perfect. Churches aren't perfect. And we won't always get it right. And our acknowledgement of that actually even sometimes surprises people that don't understand the gospel message. Some people think that Christians are walking around with this superiority complex, uh, that looking down on everyone and everything because we are the enlightened ones and you guys just don't get it yet. But that's actually not the, the proper Christian perspective in this world. Uh, admittedly, we, we are the... The, the privileged, adopted children of the Almighty God. That's amazing. 
But because we're becoming these people of love, of sacrificial love by grace, if anything, we should be walking around as the most humble of all people because we realize that we're, we're sinners and we understand our fallenness and we understand that we have no ability to save ourselves. We're all people that are under grace. We're all people that are only forgiven because of what Jesus sacrificed for us. And so instead of us walking around saying, well, we're Christians, we got it all figured out. We know the truth and none of you peons do. That's not what's happening. It's a different, it's a different thing. It's a different way that we, we see it. We don't put on this false image of super Christian for other people. Whether they're Christians or non-Christians, we become aware of our weaknesses and our sins and begin that lifelong process of cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he refines us and changes us and makes us those people of love. So as we, as we continue on here, we're going to see that Peter is going to give us two challenges, one negative and one positive in regards to this love. So we're to be loving, but now we've got the two challenges. He's going to give us something to leave and something to long for. These are the two challenges, something to leave and something to long for. We see what we're to leave in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, so because of this, because we're these loving people and we're called to love and love is growing in us and we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, making us these people of love like God loves. Now he says in chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Okay, now you probably know that that list of terms is a bunch of sin, right? A bunch of bad words, a bunch of things that you're not supposed to do. I'm going to give you some dictionary definitions of each of these terms so they're a little fresher in your mind. Malice, number one. He says you got to put away malice. Malice, according to the dictionary, is this. It's a desire to inflict injury, harm, or suffering on another. Either because of a hostile impulse, just because you're mean, or out of a deep-seated meanness. That's what malice is. I just want to hurt that person just because. All right? Put it away. Secondly, deceit. Deceit is concealment or distortion of the truth for the purpose of misleading, duplicity, fraud, and cheating. When you deceive someone, you're specifically trying to lead them away from the truth or to hide the truth or to cover the truth. He says, put that away. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a pretense of having a virtuous character, moral or religious beliefs or principles, etc., that one doesn't really possess. You might know the word hypocrisy. It's, it's two words. It's, it's being two-faced, right? You're pretending that you're something that you're not. And you're acting like you've got it all figured out, that you have this upright uh, integrity and moral character, but in fact, it's not there. That's hypocrisy. You're faking it, all right? Put it off. Envy, he, he says, put that off. Here's what envy is. A feeling of discontent, or covetousness with regard to another's advantage, advantages, success, possessions, etc. 
when you envy someone else, you realize you have this feeling of discontent with yourself or wanting what somebody else has. And, and that starts eating you up and you begin to hate that person or you're desiring what they want so much that you don't care about them, you care about what they have. Put it off. And the last one here, the fifth one, slander. What is slander? It is a malicious, false, and defamatory statement or report. It's when you're talking about another person in such a way to destroy them. You're, you're either lying about them or you're tearing them down, whatever it is. Now, here's what I want you to notice about this. All of these actions that he says we need to put away, all of them involve one another. He started off by saying you were supposed to be loving one another. And now here are examples of this anti-love. It's all involving another, but it's destroying another. The agape love that we're called to, this loving that we're called to, is to build one another, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, to help one another thrive and excel. These anti-loves are to destroy and tear down and rob and deceive and take away from. They're used to manipulate or injure or exploit other people. And what does he say here? He says, look, there's no place for those things in the lives of, of Christians. They don't belong there. They're antithetical to what God's doing in your life. He's turning you into a person of love and these things are turning you into a person of hate and they do not belong. But what do we recognize? Because if you're honest with yourself, when you hear that list and you read the definitions, you probably see a few little threads of those things in your own life and in your own heart. And in fact, with some of those things, they're deeply ingrained in who we are. And it might even be the way that we've functioned in the world for much of our lives. All right? We know that we all have a sin heritage. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And we talked about um, even back in Genesis with Adam and Eve and the sin in the garden and how that sin, that desire for their way above God's way is something that is passed down throughout history. And that's why we believe that all human beings are fallen human beings. We were in Adam, it says in Scripture, uh, when they first sinned. And that, that sin that entered into the world has been passed down. We have this heritage forever. And oftentimes, we see that some of these things, these ways that we function in the world, maybe with hypocrisy or deceit or malice or envy, a lot of times that's passed down through our families. Now, I, I don't believe what sometimes people claim, uh, if we're going to talk about things like generational curses, uh, where you cannot get away from this curse that's passed down, all right? What the Bible says is ultimately everybody's going to stand or fall based on their own decisions. Now, what is true, however, in those kinds of things is that we, we learn from other people in our family, and sometimes we have family ruts <laughs> that our families are, 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 we become predisposed towards the, way, the ways that things have always been dealt with. You know, so if you're in your family, 
uh, you're used to having this, this deceitful um, interaction with other people where you're always kind of a little shady about the truth. And, you know, mom never really told me the truth about certain things. And so I don't really tell my kids the truth about things. Or, you know, there's always been this malice and kind of uh, combative way that we interact with each other. That's the way it was with my dad and my grandpa and his grandpa and so on and so forth. Maybe that's that's in you. Maybe it's built that way. But what we find in in coming to faith and what we find that God wants to work in us is he wants to rip those things out of us and replace them, the things of hate, with the things of love. This is what we find written in Colossians 3, 7 to 10. He says this, after giving a list of some sinful things, he's going to go to some more. He says, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away. And now he's going to even borrow from this list. They share, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As we leave the old self and the, those practices, the practices of the old self behind, we grow into who God has intended us to be. Don't let yourself believe the lie or be deceived by the lie that, well, this is the way I grew up. This is the way I've always known. This is how I interact with the world. I've been doing it a long time. And I just, it is what it is. I am who I am. No, it's not true. You're, you're denying the transformation that God wants to do in your life if you say that. We let the Holy Spirit start us over. We have to be born again in every part of our lives. And when we see the shortcomings, we see our tendency toward envy or malice or slander. We learn to close our mouths when we want to say those things. We learn to bless others that have things that we don't have rather than being envious about what they don't have. When we see hypocrisy in our own lives, we repent. We tell people, I'm sorry, you know what? I was trying to put on some front that I was something that I'm not. And God's not finished with me yet. And he's working this out in my life. And I'm sorry. That's where we have to go. We leave behind, there's another fill in the blank for you. We leave behind the actions and attitudes that are not from love. Because that's what God is calling us to. We, we leave it behind. All right, and then finally, the, the last section that we see here is we have also a longing. What does it say in verse two of chapter two? It says, like newborn infants, little babies, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The, the cool thing about babies, there's lots of cool things about babies, but one of the cool things about babies in this context here is babies can't pull off any of that list of sins we looked at. A baby can't have malice. A baby can't speak slander. A baby can't be a hypocrite. They can't deceive you. They're just babies. <laughs> they don't have that ability. They're too innocent. They can't talk yet. And these sins that we've talked about, these are complicated sins. 
These are the sorts of sins that are used by people that have grown up in the world. Uh, We might refer to it as some of the wisdom of the street. That's how you become two-faced, is you've got to know what two faces look like to try to give a different spin on something, right? It's people that have been hardened by life. Babies can't do that. And so what is he describing here? He says, no, be like a little baby, a newborn infant. And, and what are we to do? It's a command here as well. This is also an imperative. We're commanded to long for spiritual milk, to desire the spiritual milk. It's like the, the old slogan, uh, if you're old enough to remember this, milk, it does a body good. And that was this whole, whole thing of the, the a milk advertisement way back when. But that's what he says. He says, look, you've got to long for this milk. It's going to do your body and your soul good. And that's what a baby does, right? A baby longs for milk. In fact, if they don't get enough milk, they're going to cry and scream and throw a fit because they need that milk. They know they need that milk. Instinctually, their survival and their growth depends on it. And that's what he's saying here to us. He says, listen, you've got to desire that spiritual milk. You've got to long for it because your survival and your growth depends on it. Well, what is it? What is spiritual milk? I I haven't seen that at Vaughn's. Like, is there an aisle there for pure spiritual milk next to the 2%? No, Pure spiritual milk is God's word and wisdom, which leads us to life. Pure spiritual milk, milk, God's word and God's wisdom, and that leads us to life. It's exactly what Jesus said to the devil in the desert when he was being tempted by Satan. It says in Matthew 4.4, here's his response when the devil was trying to get him to turn stones into bread to feed him. He said, no, no, no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was he saying? He said, the spiritual nourishment that I need comes from the words of God. And it's the same thing that Peter's referring to here. The life that we get comes from that spiritual milk that we can can get. And where do we find that? Where do we find God's word? Well, we find it in Scripture. We find it in worship. We find it in relationship with others. And when we choose that spiritual milk to to put into ourselves and reject the poisoned earthly milk, we begin to grow in spiritual health. And we're on that path to walking with the Lord. And Peter finishes the section here by quoting Psalm 34, where where he refers to, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, verse 8 to 10 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Everything that you need for life and health and growth is found in the Lord, is found in Him. And and too often, I've asked myself, you know, hey, what's happening with my spiritual life? I feel like I'm kind of off track. I feel like I'm not hearing from God or I'm I'm wanting to be pulled into sin of my old life or I'm, I'm struggling with some of these things. I've got malice in my heart or deceit or I'm leaning in these directions. 
too often what I find is I'm sipping from the wrong cup, right? It's not the pure spiritual milk that I'm pouring into my body. It's the other stuff of the world around me that I'm pouring in. And so we have to watch ourselves when we see that that's what's happening because often that's the problem. We're not longing for the spiritual milk that is there for us. So as we finish here today, as I, I, I just uh, to wrap the whole thing up, what are Christians called to? Christians are called to love one another, to leave our sinful actions behind, and to long for God's word and wisdom. That's what we're called to. And that's what Peter is encouraging us to do today. So today, as you, you process some of this and you respond to this and you think about this, consider those things. Consider the fact that you're called to love one another. Consider the fact that you're to leave those sinful things behind and to long for the, the, the goodness and wisdom of God. And I pray that as you do that, as you process those things, you'll begin to um, do what we're called to do. You'll take that next step of obedience and experience the growth and fulfillment that it's found in the Lord. Well, let's pray together as we finish. Thank you, God, for your word today. And thank you, Lord, for the challenge that Peter has laid out for us in this passage, that we would be people that are loving and leaving and longing the right things and the wrong things. And I pray, God, that you would help these truths go down deep into our heart and that you would help us be obedient to your word here. We want to be people that grow spiritually. We want to be people that have spiritual health. And we know that your word has told us how to do those things. And so as we begin to look at the specific ways that we are to apply that to our own lives, I pray, God, that you'd give us the courage and the strength to take that next step of obedience, whatever it is that you may be calling each one of us to. And may we experience the life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Thank you for this day. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to watch over us and guide us every step of the way. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.